you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm 150. That will be our, I'm sorry, 146. That will be our text this morning, Psalm 146. I was thinking that this is the last sermon in our summer series for Psalms, and so it was the end. So anyway, that was my train of thought. 150 is the last Psalm. Let us, uh, let us pray together. Our Father, we are we're thankful that we're able to come this morning to gather in this place with brothers and sisters in the faith to sing your praise, to declare your worth. And so this morning, it's, it's my prayer that your spirit would be very real in this place for each of us. Lord, and I mean that you would deal with us according to your word. I pray, God, that you would reveal uh, the hidden things of our hearts that we think aren't okay, or that we think are okay, rather. The, the, also, the things in our hearts that we, uh, that we are struggling with, God, I pray that you would bring comfort to us. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would speak into our lives and that you would do this work that you continue to do of transforming us into the image of Christ. And I pray, God, that as we read your word, you would give us a hunger for it. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word and our hearts to love it. And by your spirit, Lord, help us to understand this morning. Teach us. Now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Dr. David shared earlier, the theme, also the title of the sermon this morning, is A Life of Praise. And I think you'll see what I mean as we read through the psalm. So let's begin in verse 1. If you found your place, say amen. Let's begin in verse 1. Follow along. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. He upholds the widow. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Psalm 146 begins what's known as the Hallel Psalms. Or, in Hebrew, Hallel for English means Hallelujah. And the last five Psalms, as we sang this morning, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. The last five songs have this theme going throughout them of hallelujah, praise God, 
praising the Lord. And so Psalm 146 begins this kind of capstone on the entire book of the Psalter. So our journey through the Psalms this summer began in Psalm 1 and over the last 15 weeks has ended today or ends today with Psalm 146. And in Psalm 1, we were challenged to see really a biblical worldview of two different ways that we could live. Pursuit of godliness or pursuit of unrighteousness. Pursuit of our own way. Pursuit of God's way or pursuit of our own way. Psalm 1 challenged us to pursue godliness and to renounce the way of the ungodly or to renounce the way of the wicked. And the closing section of Psalms really challenges us similarly. Except it, it gives us kind of the outcome of that biblical worldview that approaches God and says, I'm pursuing godliness. It has as its outcome a life of praise. And what I want us to see this morning is this life of praise for the believer comes from the transforming work of Jesus Christ through his spirit and manifests itself in a life of praise for all of God's people. And so this morning, I want us to see, as Dr. David shared a moment ago, a life of praise flows from a right view of who God is and what he has done for his people. From creation to redemption to eternal glorification. From the beginning to end, God desires and has designed that his people would live a life that is ultimately and completely sold out to him for his glory. And so this morning, I think the text gives us three exhortations to a life of praise. And I want us to see those. Excuse me. The first that I want us to see this morning is the command of hallelujah. That may sound strange, but in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist gives us a command in the Hebrew language. It's one of those imperatives. And he says, praise the Lord! Exclamation point. It's an exhortation to all of God's people. Praise the Lord communally. He is corporately summoning all of God's people to come together and to praise God, to make that their their chief mission, their aim. Praise the Lord. And then in verse 2, so he says, praise the Lord. And then in verse 1, he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. He goes from exhorting the congregation to simply exhorting his own life, preaching as if he's preaching to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And in verse 2, he continues, I will sing praise to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God with all of my being. The psalmist sees his life of praise on earth as preparation for an eternity of praise in heaven. And he desires that his heart would be caught up into praising God. But I want to ask and answer the question this morning, what does it mean to praise the Lord in all of life? What does it mean and what does it look like? So I want to give you a few points here. First, I want us to note the what of praise. The what of praise, that is, praise is an expression of humble joy. He says, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. That's why I'm breathing on this earth. 
I'm going to sing praises to my God. In fact, if you look at Psalm 150, it goes all the way. He goes all the way from 146 all the way through Psalm 150. And at the very end of the psalm, you know what his, you know what his, his words are in Psalm 150, verse 6? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. A friend of mine asked the question, what if that psalm said, let everything that praises the Lord have breath? How many of us would be breathing So what does it mean to praise the Lord in all of life? So I want us to see that praise first is a humble, it's an expression of humble joy. Humble, humble because when we praise God, we're exalting Him above all others and above everything else in our lives. We're making much of Him and by nature of praising Him, what are we doing? We are minimizing ourselves. You see, when we praise God, we're saying you're worthy. You're worthy of all praise. You're worthy for a whole host of reasons, that which we're going to cover this morning in the psalm. So it's a it's a humble expression. We make ourselves low before God when we praise him. We acknowledge that he's sovereign. We acknowledge that we are the created. He is the creator. He's all knowing and we simply are not. He's all wise and we are not. But it's also an expression of joy. So it's humility and it's joy. Thank you. Why is praising God an expression of joy? Well, the reason it's an expression of joy is because we find our greatest delight in life when we are praising God, when we're truly worshiping him and submitted to him, when we are worshiping God and basking in his glorious presence, we are truly delighting in him. And it is it is a tremendous experience and time of knowing the blessing and the presence of the Lord. And so in the midst of of praising God, we experience his goodness. We experience his glorious presence in a way that is otherworldly. It's not like anything on earth. And in praising God, we are communing with the sovereign creator of all. He is the one who is over creation, who not only cares for us, but get this, he leads us. We see throughout throughout Scripture, throughout the Psalms, even the New Testament, Jesus takes a claim for himself that God is our shepherd. He leads us in life. He leads us, get this, in the best way. He leads us into the best places, and he leads us to the most meaningful, rich depths of life. So, first... We see that praise is a humble yet joyous expression to God. That's the what of praise. But notice as well the where of praise. The where of praise is in all of life. He says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. In everything I do, I want to praise the Lord, the psalmist is saying. And I think it's here that we need to see and recognize that Life is the stage of gratitude where we magnify the glory of God, our creator, through devotion that's directed to him in our lives, through works that are manifesting him in our lives to others. They see the good works that we do for his glory. 
and then through the words that we express to him and, and about him. We are not only declaring his praise, but we are speaking to others, declaring his goodness, declaring his salvation. And so life, then, is the stage where we are gratuitously praising God for the work that he has done in our lives. So true praise of God goes beyond momentary corporate gatherings like we're in this morning. Now, it certainly includes the momentary corporate gatherings where we are we are gathered together this morning. But it, it goes beyond this to include all of life. That is, we praise God in work because he has created work and we do it for his glory. We praise God in the hobbies because he has given us the ability to enjoy and to do things and, and to see his goodness even in recreation, right? Recreation of our, uh, just this, this idea of refreshment. We praise God in the midst of food, in the midst of drink, in the midst of entertainment, in the midst of, of exercise, in the midst of all that we do. Life is the stage whereby the believer who's been born in Christ and made new in Christ learns to live in such a way that we give glory to Christ in everything we do. And so the psalmist here is saying, with all of my being, as long as I live, I'm going to praise God. Third, I want us to note the how of praise. The how. So he says, and we alluded to this a moment ago, he sings. I will sing to the Lord, right? As long as I have my being. You see, praise manifests itself in singing to the Lord. And that comes from the overflow of a heart that's committed to God in worship. A life of praise flows from a holy life of dependence on God. Just as a musician tunes his instrument in order to have it make a beautiful sound so that it's acceptable and enjoyed by the audience, so the believer must tune his or her heart for beautiful, acceptable worship before God. Because a holy life of dependence on God determines a sanctified heart in the worship of God. And this is what a holy life is all about. It's about bringing glory to Him and about living in such a way where I am following obediently. And the chief desire of my heart is to bring Him glory. I think the psalmist is saying God isn't just part of His life. God's the heart of his life. He's the center of his life. And so many Christians today relegate God to a small part of their lives and and they miss the joy of the journey of what it means to walk in the Lord and to experience his goodness. Taking their eyes off of God, they begin trusting in self. Verse two. So he says, I'm going to praise the Lord as long as I live. With all of my being, I'll praise him. I think, you know, I think we see this life that the psalmist is talking about. I think we see it demonstrated in the pages of certainly of Scripture, even even in the New Testament. We see it demonstrated in the life of John the Baptist. Think about John the Baptist. When Jesus came on the scene, his ministry of proclaiming repentance in the wilderness and his fame greatly shrank, didn't it? And when John the Baptist's disciples came to him and said, this this guy, Jesus, he's He's taking disciples and he's baptizing guys in the Jordan River. What did John the Baptist say? He must increase. 
and I must decrease. You see, his life was set on the trajectory of bringing glory to God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he's speaking to the church and he tells them, when I came among you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, it was my chief aim, my chief desire to proclaim Christ to you, not to make you followers of Paul or Apollos or Cephas, but to make you followers of Christ. Philippians 1.21, Paul tells the Philippian church in his struggle, he says, uh, for me to depart and to be with the Lord, it would be glorious. But for your sake, I need to stay. And so he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, his desire in life chiefly was to point others to the person and work of Christ. The psalmist's desire is to point others that his life, his complete life, would be sold out to, to making God gloriously known, to praising him, that it would be all about him. So it is for the believer that we would ask God, make it our desire to live a life of praise, that we too might declare, hallelujah, like the psalmist, praise the Lord like the psalmist, that we might praise him in all of life. You see, we must view all of life as the stage through which we're living out God's greater purpose in our lives. Our lives are flames that are burning brightly for the glory of Christ. Our lives are the lights that are shining in the midst of darkness, pointing others to fix their eyes on God, the Creator, on Christ, the Savior. And so this morning, I want to ask you to evaluate your life. Is your life consumed with praise of God? Or is it consumed with praise of things? Or is it consumed with praise of men? What, what consumes the praise in your life? Do you find your greatest joy in living for Christ? Do you realize the purpose of your life is to return glory to God and to point others to fix their eyes on God the Creator, Christ the Savior? I pray that we do. I, I pray that that's the challenge that we hear this morning. First, in verses 1 and 2, the command of hallelujah, praise the Lord. Secondly, this morning, the second exhortation I think we see in the text goes from verses 3 through 9, and it's the commission of complete dependence. And this really is a call, a challenge to rely on the Lord. We see this in verses 3 through 9, verses 3 and 4, he says, don't trust in man, right? Look at verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Why not? Verse 4, when, he, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. He points us to see the inevitable end of man. There's a play on words here in verses 3 and 4. In the Hebrew language, the word for man is Adam, right? It's Adam. In verse 4, the word for earth is Adamah. And what he's saying here is man's end is to return to the very place from which he came, that which God the Creator is over all. And so he's saying the reason for not trusting in man is because his life is but a breath. And he returns to the very ground from which he was created. Man, in his fleshly sense, 
isn't eternal. One day we'll take our last breath. We'll die. And when we do, our plans will perish. And what the psalmist is saying is our lives aren't to be marked by reliance upon men, upon princes, upon governments. Instead, they're to be marked by reliance upon God. Man offers no true hope of salvation. And in the context here, the real temptation for the leaders of Israel, get this, it was to depend upon other nations for their defense, for their security. They would make unholy alliances with pagan nations in order to protect themselves from being overrun by the Babylonians, by the Assyrians. And the psalmist is cautioning us, challenging us not to trust in men, but to place our trust in the Lord our God. You see, the challenge for the church today is no different than it was for the people of Israel then, or for the church of Corinth, the early church in Paul's day. Following men instead of God is, is as old as sin itself. Paul admonished the early church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12. I referenced it a moment ago. He says, what I mean is that each of you says, I'm a Paul or I'm of Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And then he says, you're missing the whole point. Verse 13, he says, was Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The point isn't following men. The point is following Christ. There were divisions that were springing up within the church. They were threatening to divide the church and threatening the unity of the church. They were claiming to follow one man over another rather than all following Christ. And this is a word to us today, even in the church, that we would not become disunified over following other people, over following other men, but we would all focus our eyes upon Christ, following Christ as the chief head of the church. would also ask us as a congregation to think and to consider just nationally for a moment. We're approaching election season. The big question is, what, what are we, the church, trusting in? Who are we trusting in? I think we must be careful, especially with the new election season coming up, with this election year. Does the hope, <clears throat> does the hope of the salvation of our nation rest on moral change in our nation's policies and at the state or at the federal level? Is that where the church is placing our hope that, that the new person's going to come in and put in new policies and, and new laws in place in order to create a better moral landscape in our nation? Are we hoping for change in the laws of the land by putting more trust in the political system than putting trust in God to produce a holy church without spot or wrinkle or blemish, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5? Or are we trusting in God? Asking Him to do a work of revival in our churches, in the lives of our people, in in our nation. Are we seeking God, asking for our hearts to be as His heart is? And are we seeking to spread the name of God throughout our nation, throughout the world, because we know the only true hope for eternal lasting change is found in Jesus Christ? So the question I ask you is the same question I ask me this morning. What are we doing to be vocal about this God that we claim to praise when we gather for three hours on Sunday morning to worship? This God that we declare is the creator of heaven and earth, the one who is sovereign over all things, are we completely depending upon Him, relying upon Him, trusting in Him with all that we are and have? 
Are we being bold in our conversations with others? Now, I'm not speaking about knocking somebody over the head with the Bible in a way that, uh, that doesn't promote love or, doesn't proclare, or causes them to shut you off from hearing the gospel. But what I'm, what, I'm communi- what I'm communicating and asking for here is that we would be honest for a moment with ourselves and ask ourselves, are we really dependent upon God? Or are we expecting some policies to be made through the politicians of the land in order to change the moral landscape? And this is really what we're looking at with the counterculture study we're doing on Sunday morning, right? I mean, we, we must call out to God knowing that He is faithful, committing our hearts and lives to trust and to depend upon Him. And the call here from the psalmist is, don't put your trust in princes or in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When His breath departs, He returns to the earth and His plans perish. Many leaders, many cult Leaders, many nation, national leaders, kings and princes have passed away. But God still remains. And God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over our lives. And he's worthy of our trust. And so in verses 5 through 9, the psalmist says, put your trust in God. He tells us why God is trustworthy. He is our faithful covenant God in verse 5. Look at what he says. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, pointing to the faithful covenant God, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Verse 6. He made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he keeps faith forever. He's faithful. He keeps faith with his people forever. The psalmist is saying happy or, or blessed is the one who, who looks to the God of Jacob for his help. And the point that he's making is just as God did for Jacob, so he will do for all who rely upon him, who call upon him, who put their trust and hope in him, for he is the rock and the God of salvation. And so I, wanna, I want us to quickly walk through nine reasons the psalmist gives us to rely on God. It's in verses uh, five through nine. Each line is, is a reason. And here's what I think happens in, this, in, in what this psalmist is saying as we come into the pages of the New Testament. He gives us reasons that we are to rely on God. And then we see each of these pointing, these reasons are pointing us to Christ's fulfillment of God's faithfulness and actually become part. It's a way that Christ fulfills God's faithful promises. And then even so, even further, he commissions us. Christ himself commissions us as the church. And so that's where we're heading. But, but let's, let's begin with verse 6. God is eternal creator. All right, verse 6. He's the eternal creator, right, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them. He's above and he's outside of creation. He's not bound by creation. He exercises sovereignty over his creation. And this is in contrast to verse 4. The man who returns to the earth, right? Whose life is just temporal. In fact, it goes on in verse, uh, verse, the last part of verse 6. God is trustworthy. He keeps faith forever. 
we see God's covenant faithfulness in the life and the work of Jesus Christ also contrasted with this man who is temporal here. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He identified with man. By becoming like man, he took upon himself the body of man, of humanity. He even became a baby, an infant in a crib. He lived a sinless life. He offered his life as a ransom for sinners to pay our sin debt so that we could have relationship restored with God and that we might come to him believing upon him through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ conquered death through the cross. And then he rose from the grave on the third day. And he ascended to the Father And Scripture tells us that he now sits at God's right hand, interceding before God's throne on our behalf. And so with the psalmist, we would proclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. He saved us. He's redeemed us. He's given us life and the hope of eternity, whereas before, we had no hope. Thirdly, God executes justice for the oppressed. Look at verse 7. Just going right down. He defends the cause of the weak. Hear what Jesus says in Luke 4.18, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He walks into the temple. He stands up. He takes the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, a fourth reason, God gives food to the hungry. Yes, Christ himself came, he fed the multitudes, and he says to them, I am the bread of life. God sets the prisoners free. Jesus, yes, he sets demons, he sets men and women free. He casts demons out physically and he delivered people from bondage to sin. He told the paralytic man. Let me back up. The friends of the paralytic paralytic man bring him to the house where Jesus is ministering and they're standing room only. There are crowds outside. And what did they do? They climbed up on the roof, they dug a hole, and they were lowering this man in. Why? Because they wanted their friend to be healed, to be healed from his lameness and be able to walk. Right? And so they get up there, they dig the hole, they start lowering him down. And they knew that Jesus was one who could do this healing. But what does Jesus tell the paralytic man when he gets in front of him? Your sins are forgiven. And everybody got mad. Who is this man? And Jesus says, well, in order for you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he tells the paralytic man, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And the man gets up, takes up his mat, and goes home. Jesus met his spiritual need. Jesus knew the greatest need that he had was to be forgiven of sin. And then he frees him not only from spiritual bondage to sin, but get this, Jesus freed the paralytic man from the spirit from the physical bondage of a paralyzed body. He sets prisoners free. So the psalmist is celebrating. Here's all the things that God does. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He he sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind, right? Just as Jesus opened the eyes of blind Bartimaeus so that Bartimaeus could see him both physically and spiritually. Hear what Mark 10 says. 
And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, there was a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, he came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him on the way. You see, Jesus delivered him from the physical blindness, but he also delivered him from spiritual blindness. You see, these are both physical and spiritual works that Christ has done. God lifts up those who are bowed down, the psalmist says in verse 8. But not only does he lift up those who are bowed down, we come to the New Testament, pages of, scripture, pages of New Testament, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, and what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? You see, you see the faithfulness of God at work? God who is praised for his deliverance, for setting men free, for healing blindness, for lifting up those who are bowed down. Is, is, he comes to us in the person, in the work of Christ in the New Testament. And he is God in flesh, demonstrating God's faithfulness, his goodness toward us. The psalmist says God loves the righteous. He identifies with us and he cares for his people Matthew 5, 10, 11, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil about you on my account. And verse 9 tells us he watches over the foreigner and the helpless. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. Since Jesus is the fulfillment and faithfulness of God's redemptive plan for his creation, we see in him the work that's ascribed to the Father in Psalm 146. We see it modeled and lived out faithfully in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. And we understand this to be the mission and the ministry of Christ. And I want to challenge us, church, that the very mission and ministry of Christ while he was in the world is the same mission and ministry that Christ has given to the church, to us. We, too, are to be about seeking justice for the oppressed. We, too, are to be about feeding the hungry, proclaiming the gospel to set prisoners free, to open the eyes of the blind, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. We, too, are to lift up those who are heavy laden. We, too, are to care for the widows and the orphans, as James instructs us. We, too, are to seek to be neighbors to foreigners in our land, as we, we seek to do with ESL, ESL ministry, and, and even in Fatty's case. All of this, all of this we do, why? Not for the glory of ourselves. We do it for the glory of God. And the reason... The reason is because Christ has transformed our lives. 
causing our hearts to be in line with his. And he's he's caused our wills to be surrendered to his. And so we come and we surrender our very lives to his as we walk with him. And in living this way, we display and we proclaim the gospel. Through living a life of praise. And so we're to call upon God with great dependence, trusting him to do all things that only he can do. Let me ask us this morning, are you relying on the Lord? Are you living in complete dependence on him? Do you know this testimony to be true in your life? That he set you the prisoner free? That he's opened your eyes to see your sin so that you might trust in him and profess faith in him? The third exhortation I want us to see this morning is that we're exhorted to a life of praise through the confession of God's reign. We see this in verse 10. The Lord, our God, reigns. Verse 10, he says it. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Scripture repetitively points us to this awesome truth about God, that he reigns forever. Believers find hope in this great and awesome truth of God. For all who are trusting in God through Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this morning the promise and the fulfillment of God's plan for his people. That because of Christ, we can experience abundant life with him forever. Hear Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You know what that's saying? Sin entered the world through Adam, one man, and by that man, sin was passed down to all mankind. But in Christ, we have one who has restored humanity. We have one who has come and who has given us life by professing and placing our faith and trust in him. And by doing so, we can have life abundantly. And we, too, can be with God who reigns forever. And because of that, we can say, praise the Lord. The hope of all who put their trust in Christ is that we can experience deliverance from sin and that we can know victory over death in this life and be brought into God's eternal kingdom. The challenge this morning for each of us is to evaluate our lives and to ask the question, is my life being lived as a life of praise? See, a life of praise flows from a right view of who God is, a right view of what God has done for his people, from creation to redemption to eternal glorification. Where do you fall this morning? Is your life consumed with a life of praise? Does the psalmist's words, I will praise the Lord as long as I live, ring true in your heart? Is that the desire of your heart this morning? I want to challenge you this morning, if it's not, to repent, to confess that before God. I want to exhort you this morning, church, to a life of praise. I want to challenge us to take this seriously. Are we trusting in God? 
Are we calling out to him? Are we crying out to him for dependence? Maybe that's the prayer that you need to have this morning. Maybe that needs to be the prayer of your heart. Crying out to God for dependence, complete trust upon him. I'm going to close this in prayer. Let me make mention of one other thing before I do. If if this morning you're here as one who's never professed faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that the God that we have prayed to and praised this morning is the God of eternal redemption. The one who came in the form of man, as we said a moment ago, to die for your sin, that you might have eternal life. And if you've never professed faith in this Jesus Christ, I want to ask you this morning, I want to invite you that you can do that. You can do that right where you're sitting. You can confess your sin before him and trust him. You can come down front and talk with me and we can talk later. You can come and just share with me that God's working in your life in that way or share with someone next to you, share with someone around you. If the Lord is drawing you in that way this morning, do not, do not delay. Surrender your life to him. I'll be down front if you want to pray. The steps are open. If you, if you want to just move forward as a, as a way of commitment to the Lord, you can certainly do that. Let us pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of the psalmist who says, I'll praise you as long as I live, as long as I have breath. I want the praise of your name to be found upon my lips. Let that be all of our hearts cry. God, teach us how to live a life of praise for your glory so that we might affect others, the nations, with the hope of the gospel. And Lord, if there's any this morning who are struggling to surrender their life to you, are struggling to surrender an area of sin and difficulty to you, I I pray, God, that you would draw them by your spirit and give them strength to take a step of faith and to surrender to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?